0: That's up to 25 percent off outdoor furniture at burrow. dot com slash acast. What is that? That's the second time it's gone on.
1: They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those 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 boys.
2: I said, I want to win the league, but I
1: want to win it better. You can
0: understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. You're very
3: welcome along to the first second captains at the Irish Times of 2014. We do hope you've had a good year so far. All going well. We don't like to air a dirty linen in public here, Ken. No. But... On this occasion, we may just have to. Such is the nature of our work that when one of the presenting team is missing from a show, we feel it's important to explain to you, our beloved listener, the true reason for the absence.
0: Disclosure.
3: Mm-hmm. You will not be enjoying the company of a resident, Court Jester, Ciaran Murphy today, as Kieran is currently the subject of disciplinary action. Charged, Ken, as you know, yeah. with committing crimes against online radio. I'm limited in what I can say at this point, as this case is ongoing, but I will reveal the piece of evidence which is central to the investigation this is an audio clip from my most recent show, first broadcast on December 31st, 2013.
0: Monsieur Ullo's holiday, la, vac- la vacance de Monsieur Ullo. no? I can't. What the hell was that? It was uh, Kieran Murphy apparently trying to speak French.
3: I used to love the French language, Ken. I don't even know if I can ever watch a low low again. I mean, just... <laughs> Monsieur Ullo's holiday, la, vac- la vacance de Monsieur Ullo. no?
0: No. <laughs>
3: <laughs> naturally we ran this quite uh, right to the top of the second captain's chain of command we consulted the big kahunas at the Irish Times Trust yeah. and we also emailed our trusted Irish Times confidant Miriam Lord all agreed Murph must be immediately suspended pending further investigation he may never be back or he may be back in our next show
0: well hopefully not I mean hopefully you you hate to see a situation where actions don't have consequences.
3: Later today we're going to put out our football review of the year. Richie Sadler and Dion Fanning with us for that. Also looking a little bit ahead to what's going to happen this year, given that it is World Cup year and all that. Rugby and Premier League football have been the two big live sporting events over the last week or so. Most of this show is going to be given over to the rugby. Shane Horgan and Eddie O'Sullivan will chat about the Sean O'Brien injury, what that means for Ireland in particular. Jamie Heaslip and the latest on his situation. Also Ulster against Munster, one of the Interpro games coming up over the next couple of days, but can the first Premier League management uh, managerial appointment, I should say, of the year has been confirmed today, and it is
0: Oleguer Solskjaer takes over at Cardiff, um, which I think has come as a surprise to a lot of people because Oleguer Solskjaer seemed to be doing everything so carefully. He uh, had been doing his coaching badges. I mean, according to Alex Ferguson, you know, he'd been he'd been taking notes on every training session pretty much since he was twenty three years old. And all his coaching badges and so on, all very um, done in, a, in an ordered uh, manner. Got them out of the way early. Uh, didn't, as he could have done, take a job uh, in England, uh, preferring instead to go to Norway and learn his trade mm. and uh, win the league a couple of times at Malda, And has suddenly pitched up at possibly one of the biggest laughing stock clubs in world football. Um, I mean, this is a club which is, I I suppose. Why is the English Premier League the kind of market leader uh, looking around the world in terms of football on TV? The English Premier League is the is the one which seems to have uh, succeeded there, or certainly in the lead of all ahead of all the other leagues. I mean, if you measure by how much the rest of the world pays to watch it, the English Premier League is towering over. Is that because
3: even clubs like Heart of City, not one of the bigger clubs in the Premier League, can be hilarious?
0: I think it's because I think it has to do, or the appeal of it has to do with the fact that it is the oldest. I mean, no, it's of,
3: Vincent Tan's gloves. Come on, it's those really <laughs> ominous leather, black leather gloves that he just stretches. It and it looks like metaphorically, it Looks like he's going to murder his manager.
0: Yeah, and and, and I suppose he kind of he kind of did, but you know, the, what he's doing is 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 quite interesting in a way because the appeal of this whole league. Uh, is based on its. what's the difference between the Premier League and, say, the effort that they had uh, 10 years ago in, it it was uh, Dubai, was it Dubai or Qatar, where Frank De Boer, Gabriel Batistuda, Pep Guardiola and a few guys all, all sort of pitched up well there is, for clubs
3: there is tr- tradition the Premier League would have been uh, the, even the old first division division I should say would have been known worldwide albeit not seen yeah, as regularly as it, it?
0: absolutely it was I mean it's the history um, that the idea that this what you're seeing now is kind of linked back through an unbroken chain all the way back to the 19th century you know this is kind of I think key to its appeal this is the longest established this is the the most prestigious league you know it's not a uh, otherwise you know you could you could just get a bunch of money together, set up a league in the United States, for instance. Uh, you know, if people were gonna if people were gonna watch it, you get all the best players, and you know what would be the problem with that? I think people wouldn't like it because it would be well, this is just nonsense. This isn't serious. So what, what Vincent Tan is doing in Cardiff is attacking the very thing. Which I mean, there, there's a reason why a Malaysian businessman is buying Premier League clubs it's because you know the world seems to be interested in watching this thing. It's a good way for somebody like Vincent Tan. To get attention, to get noticed, show off that belt, to be bigger than the next uh, extremely rich Malaysian man. You know, to be world famous in a way that I mean, certainly in Malaysia, the Premier League is is very popular. But if you then uh, you know take over the club and then sort of strip away all of the features about it, which are the things which are kind of core to the appeal of these clubs. You know, change the name of the club, change the colours of play. Essentially just say, none of this matters. The, the um, you know, none of what Cardiff City, as it has been up to now, um, all, all that is nonsense. You know, the colour blue, forget that, let's change to red. Cardiff City, change that, let's have Cardiff Dragons change the... You know what I mean? Mm. If you're just going to strip it all away, um, I don't really understand what's left about the club, which, uh, you know, to sort of attract people. Apart from seeing what Vincent Tan is going to do next.
3: I don't know. And it throws into sharper light what a great owner Roman Abramovich has been of Chelsea. Mm-hmm. We can talk about the way that he amassed his fortune and the various question marks about his background. Yeah. But aside from sacking a lot of managers, which you know, re- realistically fans get over that, he's been quite, quite true to the Chelsea traditions. He's had... He still has some of the players who were there when he arrived in a number of years ago, for example.
0: Yeah, um, yeah Lampard was there, wasn't he? Lampard and Terry were there. Um, I think everybody else is, has arrived. But it's
3: Solskjaer, you're not sure... It's impossible to know how he'll do because he might do reasonably well and still get sacked, just briefly on this.
0: Well, I mean, Vincent Tan has hired Solskjaer. So, mm. while I'm sure there's the possibility of him falling out quite easily... I mean, there was there was... Stories when uh, Malky Mackay was was the manager, you know that Vincent Tan would be would be passing messages down, instructing him on what substitutions to make, this kind of stuff. And it's difficult, I, I imagine, to get on with any chairman who thinks that's an okay way to go on. You know, I mean, it's 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 just an awkward one. Even if you were a really diplomatic manager who who just. Priority number one was I want to get on with my chairman, and then you get this message then that he wants you to do certain things. What
3: That's you, crossing. What the, can you do? You line, know, yeah.
0: even if you you really want to stay friends with the guy, but you just don't think that this would be a good decision. What do you do? So, you either have to be a complete stooge. Which I don't think, Solskjaer... You know, just absolutely, sir. You know, whatever it is you want, a sort of smithers. You know, you, you just have to do that. Or ah, he was a, a bit of a
3: out. he was a bit of a smithers for Alex Ferguson,
0: wasn't he? So, so Solskjaer.
3: yeah. Okay, I'll sit on the bench. No, I you know Teddy Shering was going to throw a strop if he doesn't play, so just start him. That was I'll the take unusual 20 thing minutes at
0: the end. That was always the weird thing with Solskjaer because he was such a good player that who, who seemed to have low self esteem. He just seemed to think, well. I am probably only about the fourth best striker at this club. And, you know, sitting on the bench at Manchester United, the, yeah, it's a it's a fine place from which to view the football world. I'm quite close to the top of the mountain here. You know, not at the actual top, but quite close to it. I'm in proximity to great deeds. And every so often I get to come on... Such so as win the
3: Champions League. And be part of it, but, <laughs> yeah. you
0: know. So, um, uh, most players, I think would sort of rebel a bit against that but Solskjaer seems to be always a rational type okay you know this mightn't be the the best of all possible worlds but it's maybe it's the best one that I'm going to uh, actually get to play in
3: We're going to talk to Jonathan Wilson we'll ask him about Solskjaer but also about Tim Sherwood Wilson for one isn't falling for the early Tim Sherwood hype he does seem to be doing very well but we're starting with rugby and the year has begun as last year ended with pitch battles raging between rugby authorities in this case it's the rugby bodies in Wales, the clubs versus the union. Now, the regions, just to give you the background to this, we are joined to talk about it by Eddie O'Sullivan and Shane Horgan. But the background is the regions were supposed to get back to the unions and sign a deadline, an extension to their agreement, their participation agreement, which would have last another four or five years. That was supposed to happen before the new year. They refused to do that amid talk that the clubs are going to join the Aviva Premiership and almost break away in some ways from uh, the Welsh Rugby Union. Now, the WRU say go ahead, you do that, and we'll enter four other teams in our primary competition or certainly in the Rabo Pro Direct, whatever, about what's happening in Europe, which seems to be a fairly, uh, it's a vista that everyone's staring into over there, which could have implications, in fact will have implications here and elsewhere. I'm joined, as I mentioned, by Shane and by Eddie. Shane, are you excited about the prospect of Munster versus Colwyn Bay next year? (laughs)
4: I'm very concerned for the Rabo League um, or whatever form the Rabo takes uh, next year because um, if the Welsh provinces that exist at the moment the regions do move to the English um, League then that's severely going to weaken the the uh, the Celtic League, as it were, and there's also talk of the Italian teams not having confirmed yet, and it would be unlikely to say that they would go on, come on board and play in a in a competition um, that that really would have wouldn't attract the the level of sponsorship that it has done in years past or public interest. And, you know, we're in quite an impasse at the moment, just when we think we've got over one hurdle um, another one is put up in front of, 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 all, the, of all the Celtic the Well, this is it, that- and
3: everyone's been talking about the Heineken Cup and the issues there. But the Rabo, as you indicated, it'll be the Celtic League again at the end of this season. Rabo are, are going to be putting out of that sponsorship deal. So there will be no title sponsor as, as things stand and potentially certainly the threat of uh, much weakened Welsh provinces.
4: Yeah, it is, and it's 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 a real problem for uh, for all the teams involved. And you know, I think even the negotiation that was done to get the European Cup to the to, to the place it is now, that in itself has severely weakened the Rabo League because you're going to be in a situation where um, there's less money in the Rabo. It's 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 proportionally there's going to be more money to the French clubs and to the English clubs if the European competition goes on along the lines that is. Um, that is um, is is being mentioned at the moment. So that means there's going to be less money per per team in the uh, in the Rabo. That means they're going to be able to not be able to compete as well again financially with the English or with the French. They're going to another no, another level. So although that deal was done and seems like it averted a lot of the problems. Mm. You know, it actually—it's—it's it's, in some ways it's reinforced the problems. It means it's going to make the English and French league stronger in comparison to the Celtic league, um, as we'll call it for next year. And also, the fact that it's qualification on merit now means that it's very likely that there's only going to be one Italian club in any European competition, which will further wel- uh, weaken the Celtic league. And the likelihood is there'll probably be only one Scottish team in it, which again will further uh, weaken the the Scottish, um, will further weaken the Scottish system and in turn the Celtic League so it, we're looking at a very very serious position for all the, the not just the Celtic League but all the Celtic League clubs and what their position is what their game is day to day and this you know we're going to talk about later on this is knock on consequences with players deciding whether they want to play with in teams that are going to be in a, a Celtic League and um, for next year and, and years going forward
3: yeah no it's a fair point I think Eddie uh, they're there being so few countries actually involved at the top level of European rugby that uh, all these issues seem to me to be quite interconnected. We can't just ignore what's going on in Wales. It would have a, It, seem, it would seem to me it would have a huge effect on what Irish rugby players might think about where they might play. But just to go back to the actual issue in Wales, do you th- how seriously are you taking the, the threats on either side there?
2: I think it's pretty serious. I mean, this whole... European uh, competition, uh, domestic competition interface, has turned into like a bad soap opera. I mean, for most of the year, we've been talking about the the, the problems with the Heineken Cup uh, and the breakaway English and French clubs, and it was all about the English and the French, and they were the power brokers, and mainly the French. And we, you know, once the French uh, discovered that they, they 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 couldn't go into a European competition. Under law, because the French Federation had the final say, and they basically dropped the, the English to an extent and isolated them. We thought, God, you know, we're kind of over the hump here. And now with the Welsh regions are up in arms and fighting with the Welsh Rugby Union. And you, you mentioned there at the outset, which is a huge problem, actually, even if all this gets sorted out. We don't have a, a title sponsor for the for the Pro 12 next year, and there's no... There's no, um, you know, commercial outfit with half a brain will commit themselves to a Celtic League next year. They don't even know what shape it's going to take. But you have to think back that this whole interface between the Welsh region and the Welsh Rugby Union is again not so much to do with rugby as a power struggle. The Welsh regions have been at war with the Welsh Union for a while. It's been going on for a while, and they've been saber rattling for years that they would join the English Premiership. Now, the English Premiership. That was never really a runner, I thing for the English. They were always happy to keep the Aviva Premiership to themselves. But because they, they got themselves into a corner on the European uh, situation, now they're reviewing their position and they would likely take the Welsh on board. But again, that's all down to governance. And the Welsh Union are saying that the under regulations the Welsh regions can't leave. And so you have a standoff in Wales now. So we thought the standoff was we're over the hill on the standoff between the English and French clubs. Now the Welsh are in a standoff, and it just destabilises the whole situation. I mean, rugby uh, in the northern hemisphere is a kind of an ecosystem which is inter- dependent on the the clubs um, and the unions working together to, to create a product. And it has, despite on and off problems of of, of, of you know relatively minor uh, size. This has been going on for the last almost 20 years pretty well and the game has been developing. But now we seem to hit major power struggles between you know, obviously the English clubs and, and, and the French clubs looking for governance of the game uh, ahead of the unions. And now it seems the Welsh have jumped on board that bandwagon. They want governance of the game ahead of the Welsh union. And it's a complete mess at the moment. And But the problem is, it's if this goes under in Wales, if the Welsh bail... Um, I, I think it just destabilises the thing catastrophically, and, and nobody knows where it will spin out there because we're in we're in whole loose territory now with this. We've all ex- accepted that the game would rattle on as we expected it, but now we're talking about the main um, parts of the game crumbling, and that's when you have a country like Wales, who so are a big part of the Pro 12, um, and and they have a big say in how you know, suddenly, um, you know, walking away. And the the, the the one final thing I said, the bizarre thing about the, the the discussions with the Welsh Union and the Welsh regions is, the Welsh regions are still insisting in playing in the new European competition. Yeah. You know, the the European Cup uh, competition, which we all thought was off the table. You know, since the, the 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 French walked away. But so there's bizarre elements to it, and you'd have to say very worrying.
3: I would have thought so, Shane, and particularly interesting is the fact that the Welsh structure is so similar to ours in this sort of regional uh, idea. Are, Are the fault lines in that being exposed to a lesser extent, but still a worrying extent, in Ireland, at the moment, when we see the issues surrounding the this securing of the top players now, Jamie Heaslip being the latest one who may or may not go to France. I saw you talking about this on TV the other night, and the idea was floated then of Leinster maybe being willing to top up the wages. Now, I believe that uh, since then they've indicated that they won't actually do that. But you could see where the logic in that lies because from the IRFU's point of view, as Johnny Sexton kind of pointed out, well, do they do they really want to pay my wages for the next couple of years or are they happy for a French club to pay the wages and I'll still play for the country?
4: Yeah, that, that lack of um, of anatomy is, is, is a real issue, I think, for Leinster. Um, as you said, and it was certainly the situation with Johnny that um, I think Leinster would have done almost anything in their power to try and keep him... Uh, last year but they couldn't do it because their hands were tied because it was it was a central system now there's a lot to be said for the central centralized system and um, and I don't think it's you're you're comparing like with like uh, with uh, the Welsh system and, and the Irish system I think it's probably one of the main failings of the Welsh system that it's not a little bit more um like the Irish system but the the problem with the Welsh is the Welsh still have um, commercial owners as well, which and they want their piece of the pie, and they want they want you know it's it's funny they want everything. The whole the problem with the rugby in the northern hemisphere, as Eddie mentioned, there's there's so much interdependency, especially from the Celtic nations. And even if you look at the situation with the wealth clubs potentially going to um, to the English league, yeah, they're they're depending on the English accepting them. The English though might make that play just to strengthen their hand in Europe. That also, you know. In effect that would go a long way to collapsing a Celtic league as well so there's a lot of plays going on here and there are considerable dangers and the RFU must be looking around along with all the Irish clubs and looking around go actually if this doesn't happen and it, the Celtic League isn't viable anymore. Where do we play our rugby? You know, what are we going to do next? And this is, you know, they have big wage bills. They have, um, and it's not as if they can, they can carry these wage bills year, uh, you know, for the next number of years without significant income coming in. And from a position where, you know, the Irish teams looked very strong it looked like a good, um, a good uh, system, it looked like a good setup, um, the way uh, we followed our path in, in the Celtic League and in Europe, all of a sudden we look very vulnerable. Because it looks as if maybe there's a movement to choose, you know, two super leagues uh, uh, with the French uh, and the English uh, holding up, uh, holding up uh, those two areas. And what really position is there for for a, for a Celtic league? That is a that is certainly a consideration. Again, I'll harp back to the deal that was done. For me, I thought that the deal was that was done to try and save the European Cup already really uh, weakened the, the Celtic league, and I think. Any movement uh, to, down this road any further, you know, could have drastic implications for it. And, and if you look at that power play that the English may be trying to make, as Eddie said a couple of years ago, they're always flirting with the Welsh teams, but I don't know if they ever really wanted them in. And um, all of a sudden now they have. They think well, actually, if if our if us welcoming the French, um, the the Welsh clubs in collapses or you know it goes a long way to welcome to weakening the own the the, the the one of the three only leagues in the northern hemisphere then what position does that put us in all of a sudden there's a lot of players on the market that you know it might be able to pick up cheaply that will strengthen their league even further you know what are what are massive clubs like you know like the Irish clubs, uh, what are they going to do and, and what league will eventually they look to play in? So there's, there's a long way to go in this. And, and you know, more and more, increasingly, increasingly, is becoming concerning for, for what the Irish provinces will do.
3: Eddie, with all this swirling around, if you were Jamie Heaslip... Um would you be looking at it and going? I have to really decide my future in the next. Probably, ideally, I think the IRFU want all all the contracts to be signed by the start of the Six Nations. Certainly, at some stage during the Six Nations, it would have to be signed off. Upon you've got maybe four to six weeks. Would you be thinking? You know, I know I have to play too many games over in France. It's probably not ideal, but I will get very well paid, and at least I know what their primary competition is.
2: Well, that'll be a factor. Yeah, I mean, if if he's just, if he's worried that the Celtic League might collapse. Um, at least you know the top fourteen is going to drive on next year, no matter what happens. I mean that is the strongest competition uh, in Europe at the moment in terms of its its viability, um, along with the Liga Premiership. The other two tournaments at the moment that don't have any risks to them. Um, so if he looks there from that perspective, it would sway him? But he'd also have to think of the long game here. You know, I mean, if he's thinking of his career, um, you know, he's he's at a point now where he's probably got maybe five six years left in the game. Especially as a back row player. Um, you know, where's he going to best maximize his, his earning potential? I think that's what it comes down to. I, I, I think the, the, there's definitely a factor here in terms of the, the, the malaise we're in, 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 in terms of the Celtic League now and the Welsh Regions and the Highland Cup. And I think that would certainly play to some degree, but I think not as much as a player looking at his career and saying, look, I've got five or six years left here, maybe on top of the game. How am I going to best maximize my earning potential? And I think, It'll go back to that. Is you know Jamie Boyle reports is is the top player in Ireland in terms of of remuneration. Um, Will he will he go to France for better remuneration, or will he play the long game and say, well, actually, if I go to France, I'm going to only get three or four years in that environment because, you know, whatever about the top 14, it's not the prettiest rugby to watch at the moment, and they've some some horrible games you watched them but the one thing they're not lacking is physicality and a player of his profile going into a league that is based on physicality I mean you know there's going to be a price to pay for that and he, he's smart enough to know that so he might get a longer career in Ireland that that might mean as well playing more international games playing on more line stores you know so all that's part of it it's not a simple one or other there's a, there's a number of factors in it but I, I think um, he'll he'll play. He'll, he'll have to look at in, in the bigger picture in terms of the next five or six years, and that might mean going to France. I'm not saying it doesn't, but it also there's a there's a, there's an advantage with staying here as well. Of course, if there's a viable competition, but I don't think he'll, he'll get his his head too wound up in that at the moment. I think it'll be about getting the contract he's happy with. Uh, to take him forward
3: His lip is interesting Shane because he seems to be a very durable player he plays an awful lot doesn't get injured anyone can get injured at any time but he seems to be a kind of guy who would be able to handle the demands of the French League particularly as you've indicated in the past if he goes to one of the really top two or three clubs the likes of Toulon or somewhere where he might genuinely get rested when he needs to be rested
4: yeah, I think you can. I think it's not as big a concern if you go to one of the elite clubs in France because they do have uh, very strong squads and they do actually rotate their squads a bit. And if you look at their players, we can't you can't just look at Irish players going over there in isolation and go actually, you know, it's going to entirely shorten your career. If you look at, across the board in France, there's some very durable players that play a lot of games in France and have long careers as well. And the level of remuneration is such at the moment um, that you know you'll make they'll make in in. Many maybe you know 2 or 3 years what might take you you know 5 or 6 years to make in um, in Ireland and that's and that is that, that's a considerable uh, differential in, in in payment and something that has to play on player's mind especially with someone like Jamie who's that bit older like he's getting to to the, to the later stages of his career um he's been remunerated by all accounts very well for the last number of years and there's also a lifestyle chase and a, a new experience he's been in Ireland all his life um but he's you know he's been very successful in it so you know this is what Eddie's talking about this, all these you know balancing factors. Um- And I'd say the other thing the major concern or the, you know, one of the major issues in negotiation would be here is how much do the RFU really want to keep Jamie Heaslip? And, you know, I think they made, they seem to have made some sort of decision around uh, Johnny Sexton last year that there was a, there was a line in the sand that maybe, you know, especially there was concerns around finance He said, well, maybe, you know, we can, we can get away with not having this guy in our books. And that is a disaster for Leinster. But for the RFU things haven't worked out, you know, terribly badly, and, um, You know, you've, they've got two potentially really high earners coming up for ne- negotiating at the moment with Jamie and uh, with Sean O'Brien. You know, will the RFU go? Listen, we can only afford to keep one of these guys. That may be the case, um, and that will have an implication on you know how hard Jamie Heaslip uh, can negotiate against the RFU because they might just go. Actually, you know, we we'll we'll, we'll do our we'll, we'll do okay to keep this guy, but maybe our focus will be on somebody else or our focus on, on new players coming through. Now, I think this is. Certainly, what's this is this seems to be the new um, um, the new system in place for the RFU that it's not about keeping every single player. It's about maybe keeping the ones that they f- find really, really significant. Is Jamie one of them? He could be, but maybe he's not as well. And um, we'll find that out in the next uh, number of weeks. And I think it's it's you know it is something that's. It's, it's, a, it's a new sort of system that's developing up. They're not going to be able to keep all their players. And I think that's the one thing that we all have to get used to at the moment. Whether it's good or not for, our, for, for RFU and whether it's good enough for the for the provinces throughout Europe um, to be losing players. What's going to happen is certainly this is, this is going to happen. Ireland is going to lose more and more players just because the amount of money that is now in the French and English game, that it's, it's no longer comparable to what uh, the RFU can offer.
3: Yeah, I just want to look ahead a little bit. That's uh, to the weekend's games. Ulster against Munster tomorrow at seven o'clock. Does this become Eddie a really key game from for Ulster's season in a way? I know it's not the Heineken Cup, but they have to bounce back. They we we hear a lot about how they're they're aiming to win trophies. They want to win the Heineken Cup. They believe they can, but they don't seem to have the depth and they don't really seem to have the consistency throughout the, throughout the season. Do they vitally need to win this game, having not really shown up against Leinster?
2: Well, I think it's a huge game for Ulster tomorrow night because you as you said, their season has been a bit erratic. Um and they are now you know, they they, they got to the Heineken Cup final a few years ago and obviously they were beaten by Leinster and that. And then last year, you know, they, they did well but they didn't get they didn't get to the holy grail. So the clock is ticking here. Um, you know, you've got you've got players like that are, 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 are going to leave and move back as well, like if they're going to lose John Offo next year. And I think they want to lose um one of the south africans who who's, who's i think heading back so it 's kind of it 's almost they 've developed the kind of mentality it 's an hour or never situation in 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 europe for them um and at the same time you know they, they're they're they 're hanging on uh, to a playoff list they 're fifth in the bravo twelve at the moment behind glasgow so they, they they need to they need to make sure they make the playoffs if they 're not going to win the Heineken, at least maybe win the, the pro twelve so they they yeah, are getting to a kind of a pressure situation where Ulster need to win something, you know, after all the investment and all the development. So that pressure is building. And I suppose then it's exacerbated by the performance against uh, Leinster last week, which was, you know, by their own standards pretty abysmal. I mean they didn't really show up in that game. That was a, a Leinster team with I think um something like ten changes um and there's a lot of players missing and they still you know saw Ulster off comfortably. So I think there is pressure building on Ulster at the moment and if there was a loss to Munster uh, tomorrow night, um, there's ramifications apart from the fact that they, they may, they may, you know, Glasgow are ahead of them in the Pro 12 and have a game in hand, and they may lose touch with the with the uh, the leading pack in the Pro 12. So that will take them out of the equation in the Pro 12. And you know, they're in fairness to them, they, they've drawn a very rough card in the Pro in the Heineken Cup. You know, the win against Montpellier away was brilliant, but you know, Leicester went and did the same. Uh, in the last round of the game, so the way it looks at the moment in their pool, in the Heineken, is they're going to have to go to Welford Road in the last game and get a result, and that could blow up very easily for them, so, you know, they could suddenly find themselves, you know, in the middle of of February or March, you know, out of the Heineken and, you know, really out of the running in the Pro 12, and that would be a catastrophe for them, so all that pressure is now coming to a, a point where they can't afford any more mistakes, and Munster tomorrow night, you know, is a real one where they just have to win that game, and it's a a packed house in Ravenhill, and I think Anton Olin, a win will be will, will put massive pressure uh, on on Mark Anskom.
3: Leinster away to Connacht, Shane, and they have sometimes fallen foul uh, in this fixture of of uh, a Connacht team who almost by their essence can be inconsistent, but can produce big performances and tend to sometimes do that against Leinster. What are you expecting on Saturday?
4: Um, Connacht always have the potential to come up with a big game, especially around this time of year. Um, I think that actually, t- t- to lose game, the, the the two weekends took a lot out of them, and you know, not not necessarily mentally, but physically, they lost a lot of bodies, um, and I think it was pretty draining that that second game, um, the the loss to. to to, to lose, uh, having had such a performance the, the week before and maybe such expectations they were really you know just beaten up um, at home I think Leinster will be very focused on a similar performance to that against Ulster I, I actually thought they were very impressive um, against Ulster the way they they took the, on the game something that I haven't seen from Leinster as much Leinster had either really sparkled and played just outstanding rugby or they'd been quite lackadaisical and I thought they didn't go for the you know the knockout punch against Ulster early on which is sometimes a concern of them at home and sometimes a concern when they think they're playing against a team that's not as uh, strong as the man they're not fully focused they tend to you know, just think we're going to actually run the tries in straight off the bat we're going to do the special move the special play and that's going to be enough for us so what you saw against Ulster was them really grinding them down they had a lot of pick and goes they had a lot of leeches so it was a two man pick and go which they made Great yardage from um, something that you wouldn't, you know, traditionally think of at Leinster. I think they're going to have to do something similar in Connacht. Again, you need to beat up that uh, Connacht pack, and if you can get on top, I think um, probably there's, there's there's enough quality in the in the Leinster side to uh, to out outscore um, Connacht. There, are, the, the Connacht backs have been good this year, but when we saw that the big power plays um against their pack when they were being ground down they just couldn't move the ball they didn't couldn't get it wide uh, fast enough and I think with Dan Parks at, at 10 they do struggle to have any threat in that first channel and Leinster are such a good d- defending side um, they'll come apart as they have done but they'll know that there's not that threat at 10 and if you do not have the threat at 10 um, it's very very difficult to win games unless you have like a monster pack and uh, Connacht don't have that at the moment so I expect uh, Lancer to come out on top
3: Just briefly Shane the other piece of news was uh, was clear by the time he went off air the other day actually on the Lancer game that Sean O'Brien had dislocated his shoulder and it looks like it's going to be months rather than weeks, missing the Six Nations. Is he the, Whatever about Leinster, is he the kind of player who without him in the team you nearly have to change your game plan? There's a certain game plan you can implement with him carrying ball in the back row and you might have to tweak that somewhat with him not there.
4: I think it, it- it means that you have to have significant change um not necessarily in personnel but really in the roles that uh players take up because at the moment sean o'brien's doing about three roles for Ireland. it's incredible he, he's i think he's a really good ball poacher now and, and a really good seven he gets on the ball very hard to move he turns over an incredible of ball but he's also probably along with Keane healy uh ireland's primary ball carrier and um that's incredible that he he, he he does those two roles at the same time so you're really doing you're looking at a player that does you know one and a half roles two roles for the entire game you'll notice as well jamie heaslip hasn't been as big a carrier since um sean o'brien has been in the team if you remember jamie early in his career he used to be the main ball carrier. we'd see him um breaking lots of tackles and offloading lots of balls now you actually see him majority of the ball that jamie takes now is standing Trying to speed up really slow ball one out from um, taking the ball flat from the the nine, which I think doesn't flatter him, and I don't think it's a very good plan anyway. So what we will see is now Jamie probably reverting to that role as as one of the primary ball carriers. I think that would be good for him because I like to see him get on the ball, and if you look, if you remember the end of last season. When uh, when Sean wasn't playing a couple of games for for Leinster, Jamie went back to that role and was very very successful in it. So we're gonna you're gonna have to look at the. The makeup of the back row obviously is going to change because Sean's not going to be there. But also, you're going to see actually the roles that the different positions play is going to be tweaked as well. And um, I think it's you've got a big couple of weeks for for um, Chris Henry as well. I think he's been very unlucky that he hasn't played more games for Ireland. I think he's an exceptional player. He works very very hard. And you know the only thing that's held him back is number one injury and two a little bit of discipline. He's got almost a bit too excited when he's been in the box seat and he's a tendency to give away penalties. But I think that. You know he'll sense it now, he'll sense that he's an opportunity to make that team and look for a big few big performances from him over the next couple of weeks.
3: That might be the one consolation, Eddie. It is an area of the team that actually probably for a number of years, Ireland have had options in so even though we're missing one of the best back rowers in Europe, there are guys who can come in and as Shane says, other players who can maybe play a different way.
2: Well, we've been very lucky over the years in Ireland. we've always had a cluster of back rows, and we still have you know great depth in that area, but I think Shane's point is well made that Sean O'Brien is a special animal, you know, he's, he's he you know, pretty much described his, his game as a phenomenal ball carrier, fantastic at the breakdown. He's one of those guys that is world class at the moment and, and playing out of his skin. So, you know, despite the fact we have cover, it, it, let's be honest, you know, he's in terms of somebody stepping up to the plate to the same extent. I mean, Chris Henry is brilliant over the ball, but Chris Henry won't have the same impact carrying it. Uh, As Shane points out, Jamie has not been the same type of ball carrier or used as much. He may have to come into play more now, but I think you can't use Jamie the way you'd use uh, Sean O'Brien. You've got to put Jamie into space where he can use his feet and fend because he's got great feet. So it does mean changing game plans a little bit or using guys differently, as, as Shane said. But, you know, in terms of go forward, um, Sean O'Brien is, is one of the best in the world so no matter who's going to jump into that short they're not going to be able to do the same job so either way despite the fact we have depth he's going to be a huge loss
3: alright Eddie Shane brilliant stuff thanks a million
2: thank you Shane, Shane, Shane Curran with the kick out the 42 year old goalkeeper Curran it
3: out from goal here he comes he's talked it he's it. he's 50 yards out from goal what the day for us common. all the mud is lame and you know it now when the real gonna hoe you down you're supposed to drown Pam.
2: thank you forty four is the last famous senior come out of here and the love love be the last one Pa
4: all the damn for us coming.
3: Leave a pretty girl All right, just before we leave the rugby, I do want to mention, you probably have seen this, it's been heavily advertised over the last week or so, but Raj, the Ron Nogara documentary is on tonight. It's on, or that's if you're listening, on Thursday. It's on RT1 at half past nine. This is great because it's a brilliant subject matter. Skillful filmmakers who've had great access over a number of very interesting years of a sports person's career. A certain amount of the pre-hype, Ken, has been about the Johnny Sexton relationship. We're probably going to see more about that than we've ever seen before. There's certainly a huge amount of uh, intimate thoughts from Ron O'Garr. But this is one that we had heard will be coming out bef- before now. It seems uh, as though originally, certainly we had heard an inkling that it might be not long after the last World Cup. It's been following him that long. So we'll see the start of that relationship with Sexton but more, almost as at least as interested in his relationship with Declan Kidney. You never hear that much interesting stuff said about Kidney by players. O'Garr seems to be uh, somebody who at that point that he was talking to the to the people, will have something to say about that. You're going to watch it tonight, half past nine.
0: Yeah, I think so. I was watching the trailer. The thing that really struck me about the trailer is how great uh, Crow Park looked. I don't know what weather conditions uh, were happening here, but it seemed the match seemed to be taking place in darkness. The floodlights were there purely as a decorative measure uh, to sort of shine through the fog, and <laughs> and the whole the whole thing just looked very eerie and uh, kind of menacing. And there was Ronald O'Gara standing there like a druid in this uh, in this very bulky um, sort of tracksuit hood, an Arsene Wenger sideline lagging jacket combo. And uh, yeah, it looked, uh, it looked pretty spectacular.
3: Full set of Premier League fixtures yesterday. It doesn't happen that often. Mm. The teams all play together on the same day. Very old-fashioned in a lot of ways. Yeah. Saturday, three p.m. kickoff.
0: Yes, and as old, it used to be. Oh, the Manchester United It was a bad one for them to lose that because yeah. they everybody else, all the other teams ahead of them have won, apart from Everton who uh, drew. But yeah, a complete disaster. And you know, you got the sense even that they it wasn't like you know Tottenham beat Manchester United last season at Old Trafford 3-2, and played really well, and scored a couple of fantastic goals, and it was a really, it was a fantastic performance by Tottenham. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, it was a pretty average performance. There was a great header from Adebayor, it reminded me of the, remember the Ronaldo header against Manchester United, I remember those amazing photographs of this uh, leap, uh, it was the same kind of thing from Adebayor, really sensational header, but... You know, they didn't really have to do that much. Tim Sherwood said afterwards, I thought we could have held the
3: ball a lot better. We could have played a lot better. We needed to get it into our number 10 position a lot more often because they were there for the taking.
0: They were there for the taking. It's quite yeah. a
3: cutting remark in its way.
0: Yeah. I'm sure Tim Sherwood won't be allowed to forget about that one. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a little bit, hey, come on, Tim Sherwood, you've won. You've <laughs> managed to win at Old Trafford. Just be happy about that. You know, there's no need to strut around and talk about how you know that was that was always going to be easy. Maybe a little bit of modesty in victory would have would have been more advice.
3: Ah, what's there to be modest about though? Jonathan Wilson, Tottenham have been on a festive rampage through other Premier League teams, including Manchester United. They've ten points out of twelve over the Christmas period, destroying the champions in their backyard. You remain to be convinced, though, that Tim Sherwood is the correct long term option.
1: Yeah, I do. and I'm slightly mystified by why he's being hailed in the way he is. I mean, I, I, I get the fact that uh, there's a lot of frustration among you know, among fans, among journalists, among players. It seems with Fierce Boas, there was a sense that he was overly cautious, that uh, he sort of had sapped the fun out of football for, for a lot of people. Um, that I mean, maybe caution's the wrong word, but it was a, a, an over technicality. That, that yeah, he was very much a technocrat. He, he believed in the numbers. He believed, believed in statistics, and maybe some of the the, the joyfulness had gone. So I, I understand that there's sort of a reversion against that and, and that Sherwood's apparently happy go lucky approach um has come as a you know as a breath of fresh air after that. Um and obviously, yeah, you know, winning at Manchester United is a is, is still although they're the fourth team to do it this season is still a great result and of course they, they did win their last season under V Espos. Um but yeah, you, know, you, you do think okay, there's five games he's been in charge of. They've kept one clean sheet in those five. If Fierce Boas had lost to West Ham, had drawn at home to West Brom, would we now be talking about this fantastic Christmas run that they had? I, I suspect we wouldn't, even even with the, the the win at Old Trafford.
0: Is there an argument that this is an English manager who understands what the club is all about? He's, um, you know, he's sent out a team which is, you know, playing in the traditions of Tottenham Hotspur, attacking football. Uh, flair that 's what the fans want to see, and uh, maybe he 's playing to the gallery a little bit with, with that, but but maybe there's also something in that As Spurs fans actually want their team to play attacking football and and are happier when the team does do that, even if you know they do lose at home to West Ham.
1: Well, I mean possibly, but I mean that that's, that 's that's a question that contains so many other um questions within it. I mean for one thing, which, team, which team's fans don't want to play attacking football? Yeah, which team believes has an identity of playing really crabby, negative, nasty Inter. football? Okay, one possibly. You can argue that in Argentina, Boca have always seen themselves as being the scrappers, as opposed to the, you know, the, the elegant strolling flaneurs of, of, of River. But all teams believe they play attacking football and have a great attacking tradition. So the idea that Tottenham have some kind of monopoly on that, I think, is very strange. I think it's also strange. You'd, I mean, Tottenham fans particularly seem to kind of go on about oh, we have to play in a Tottenham way. Well, the Tottenham way that hasn't won a league title in half a century. I mean, you know, why is that a good thing? Um, is, is this really you know everything else is going on around the club? Is that the traditional Tottenham way to sell a player for ninety million pounds and buy seven others for one hundred and ten million? I mean, that's that's never happened before. So should we not do that? Uh, I find that that the whole idea you have to do things in the way the club's always done them. Very, very odd. Clubs do change. I mean, look at how Arsenal changed since Wenger has has come
3: in. But maybe, Jonathan, it's something that you have to cling to now because Tottenham, are they really going to win a league anytime soon? A Champions League place is, is generally considered a very good result for them these days. So with that, then you're only left with one cup of any real note in the FA Cup, which is tricky enough to win, even if it's been devalued somewhat over the years. In that kind of environment, I guess fans cling to whatever they can cling to and if one of those sort of tenets of what it means to be a Spurs fan is attacking football I could sort of see the logic of them even if it's a little bit yeah it's a, they're not the only ones who play attacking football I can still kind of see why they go for it
1: Well I can but I also think that last summer uh there was a sense that this was a new Spurs emerging that uh the the windfall from Gareth Bale you know I mean really OK, it's it, it good business to, to see a kid that young, that talented, and bring him in and develop him to a point where you can sell him for 90 million. But what they were able to do with the proceeds of that was something that I think is pretty much unique, to, to be able to buy six or seven really world-class players, OK, maybe all slightly still to develop to their absolute peak, but really to to take the squad from having you know, a very good first 11 or first 14 to having a very, very good 20, Without uh, a billionaire, you know, an oligarch, investing, I can't think of another example of that happening that you, you sort of almost organically create that that kind of revenue and create that kind of growth. Now, if you then sort of write off the policies that have got you to that stage after three months because you've had a couple of bad results and because the football isn't quite perfect and then it's not quite as fluid as you'd like, it doesn't seem to me a very logical way of doing things. Um, so, and I also, the other thing that, re, that actually really troubles me about Michelle Wood's accession and, and the way he's gone about things, and it may be that he's playing to the gallery and he's actually playing a much smarter game than, than it appears. Uh, and this sort of breezy 4 is a short-term measure to, to, you know, to, to stimulate life and, and to get everybody uh, sort of happy again. But the whole point of having a director of football, the point of having Franco Baldini, is to have this consistent philosophy through the club. I mean, I know this is a thing that Manchester City were mocked for, this holistic approach but that, it just seems to me weird that we we want our teams our clubs not to be holistic I mean surely you want every part of the club pulling in the same direction, and that means players in the youth teams playing in the same way as the, as the first team, so there should be a clear progression all the way through now if if you have the man in charge of the first team, if you have a head coach playing the sort of 3 one hybrid this this sort of technocratic slightly crabby approach and you replace him with the the bloke in charge of technical coordination he, has, he seems to have completely different ideas and a completely different tactical approach yet how does how does that work in the overall scheme I mean is this, is this is this football that Sherwood's playing is that what Baldini wants so is this a short-term measure till you know maybe Van Haal comes in in the summer I know Sherwood's got the 18 month contract but I, I I can't see where what the cohesion is there I can't see what the cohesiveness is that either appointing Vesposo was a terrible mistake or Allowing Sherwood to play in this way is a terrible mistake, unless you know it, it is sort of part of a wider plan to develop back into the style that ABB was playing.
0: Maybe there, there's a bit of uh, pragmatism about what Tim Sherwood is doing. I mean, I know certainly. I mean, when, when you're writing about tactics, one of the kind of points that comes up again and again is the way that things sort of tend, to, the way that over years tactics evolve, or things go out of fashion and then come back in. Um, a certain system becomes. Dominant, and then suddenly a system which was outdated is found once again to be effective because I suppose people have forgotten, um, you know, or are, 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 are no longer used to playing it, and maybe this is what what's happening with with Sherwood and his four for two. I mean, for instance, looking at the looking at what Tottenham were doing under Villas Boas, just one aspect of it was nearly every game they played Soldado as a centre forward by himself, and he seems to be unsuitable for the role. I mean, at least in the English league, he's he's not really quick enough, he's not strong he wasn't really a factor in the games um, you know, as a lone striker Tim Sherwood has just put Adebayor back in I mean, who knows what exactly You know, no one can really rely on him to to keep playing well for, uh, you know, in the long term but, you know, if you have a player like Bayor and you've got the opportunity to play the system that, that they've been using say at Old Trafford, then I don't understand why Vilspo's never used that I mean, maybe, you know, what Sherwood is doing, there's, there's a certain kind of uh, cunning pragmatism to it
1: yeah, I mean, I think certainly going back to, to strike partnerships, and that seems to be seems to be something that's it's in vogue at the moment. In Manchester City, doing it as well. Liverpool have done it when when Sturridge's been fit, and and that does seem to be causing defensive problems because I, I guess as you know, as a, as a central defensive pair, you get used to playing against one man, so one marks and one covers, and when both have to mark, that clearly changes your thinking and changes the nature of the game. So I, I think the reemergence of a strike partnership is, is is an interesting trend recently. What, what worries me about Tottenham is if you're only going to play two central midfielders, uh, especially if you play with your overt wingers you're very attacking wide, wide midfielders, and not even really playing with two out-and-out holders. I, mean, I know Kapu played against, against United, and, and obviously that does give them a little bit more solidity. Um, but it's still an incredibly attacking approach. Now, every team they've played, those, those five teams they've played, none of them, you would say, are particularly strong in midfield. So I think the real test actually comes against Arsenal on Saturday, where Arsenal's midfield is their great strength. And Arsenal it's it's not just that they have very good players in there, it's not just they have five players in there. It's that they do play very narrow and that means they you know, they they will overman Tottenham. Now, if Sherwood can can react to that, then, then maybe you know, I have been misjudging, I have been underestimating him. But I, I suspect the Tottenhams get overrun on Saturday. Now, again, that's not necessarily a problem if his back four holds strong. If he has Capu or whoever sitting just in front, and they can sort of hold Arsenal at arm's length, and then they use the the attacking width they have to to counter quickly. But I, I'm I'm not convinced that they they have the defensive strength to do that. I'm not convinced the fullbacks are equipped to do that because they're both attacking fullbacks as well. So it could be they just sort of through energy and enthusiasm they, they they take a grip on the game early and sort of rattle Arsenal but I think Arsenal this season have, have shown um, great resilience, great mental strength, great patience, great belief in their method. They've been willing at times to, to sit off and against Southampton even there was a spell at the end of the first half when they, they sat back and they absorbed pressure. So, I, you know, I, I see problems for Tottenham on Saturday and I, I think you know, this is the, the first real test of have showed which seems weird given that they just played Manchester United but you know, not a strong Manchester United.
3: Jonathan, just a quick one on the news that's been confirmed today. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is the new Cardiff City manager. The general reaction to this story as it's unfolded over the last few days is one of mild disbelief that Solskjaer would throw in his lot with uh, a chairman such as Vincent Tan. Uh, we can all see the dangers of working for that man but I don't know in, in some ways the Solskjaer not the perfect person to work with somebody like that. He's he's proven himself over his football career to be patient, to be happy enough, even when he's not playing for Manchester United. In fact, he seems to be the only footballer maybe ever to have literally zero ego. Maybe he might have fit in quite nicely at Cardiff.
1: <laughs> yeah, possibly. I mean, I, I, I guess for, for him, you know, he, he'd had three seasons at Moldo. They, they won the league in the first two. They won the cup this season. And, and it's it's probably different now to when Aston Villa approached him uh, in summer 2012. He probably feels there's, there's not much. He couldn't have gone much further with with Mulder. That that he'd, he'd served as apprenticeship there and he's ready for a move to to the Premier League. Whether Cardiff is really the best club, I, I'm not so sure. I um, especially when other jobs appear to be available. I mean, you know, West Brom job's still there. So, would you rather have Cardiff? Would you rather have West Brom? I'm, I, I'm not sure um, I mean I, I guess the advantage of going to Carter, from a very cynical point of view is that if it goes wrong you shrug and say well it wasn't my fault look at the boss and nobody really blames you so mm. in a sense to get out of jail free card there but I mean, I, 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 that, you know I think whoever works with Tan there will be problems in the relationship and, and as you say maybe, maybe Solskjaer his personality his apparent placidity w- allows him to work better than, than others but I mean, no matter how much ego you have, you don't you don't want somebody above you kind of constantly meddling, constantly sort of undermining what you're doing.
3: Jonathan, brilliant stuff. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks. I think it's important not to give Manchester United too much of a free pass on this one either. But mm. Man United were awful. They, they were you, they they were truly dreadful. And what struck me afterwards, just on Twitter, for example, was the acceptance almost now among a lot of Man United fans that this is how it is. A lot of them they didn't seem to be frothing at the mouth in the way they should. be. This is the league champions at home to let's face it a fairly average Spurs team yeah. there's nothing special about this Tottenham side Gareth Bale's not there anymore and most of the replacements have failed to live up to expectations and yet they were just listless for about 70 minutes mm. then they made a big effort towards the end and possibly could have even that though I saw afterwards Steve McManaman saying look this is scary how reliant that team was on an 18 year old
0: yeah, uh, and in fairness, he was very good. <clears throat> the pass, particularly for Welbeck's goal, was fantastic. But just sense but urgency, a sense of urgency.
3: But just a sense that hang on, we're losing it. But we, ha- so I have to do something here. Why wasn't Wayne well, there's a, doing a,
0: that? there's a few things I don't understand. Right? I mean, he he was talking. This is David Moyes that was talking recently about Robin van Persie, you know, staying on even though he was injured, having to play. I couldn't take him off. He needs to play. And van Persie's out you now. Wayne Rooney's got a groin problem. Probably shouldn't even been playing yesterday. Moyes says I can't drop him. Why can't you drop him? You know, look at the bench they had yesterday. Ferdinand, Hernandez, Young, Fletcher, Kagawa, Butner. You're telling me none of those guys are worth a, a place in the field. That's what, Wayne Rooney in midfield with an injury is a better bet than any of those guys. I think that's wrong. Mm. I just think it's wrong. I wonder what the other players think about it. I don't think Rooney played well. I don't think it did him any good. It obviously didn't do Manchester United any good. Different managers have different opinions of that. Martin O'Neill, when he
3: took over as Ireland manager, at one point referenced that. Did he play under Billy Bingham? In uh, uh, yes, for Northern Ireland, and he said that one of Bingham's things was that he just would not play you if you weren't 100% fit, yeah. he didn't care. And not that Northern Ireland had a massive playing population choose from if you weren't fit, you weren't playing, he would get a lesser player in who was 100% fit. Now, O'Neill says, I don't really fully agree with that, that's yeah. just one of the managerial influences who I've had, and that is the way he went about bed. Two different managers could have literally opposite views on how you approach those yeah. situations.
0: I, I mean, yeah, and, and it, it all depends on how close the finish line he was. In <clears throat> my opinion, watching it yesterday, he didn't look fit at all. You could see why he recently missed the match, and I wonder what's, what the situation is going to be now. Maybe Mois thought FA Cup coming up, do I need to worry that much about that? We should be able to get through that without, mm-hmm. without really being sure. But, you know, I saw him then afterwards, and he was kind of beetroot-coloured, um, really angry with Howard Webb over penalty decisions. Scandalous. Really angry, you know, and talk, talking in terms of oh, the people who employ the referees need to have a look at this, you know what I am mean? thinking, well, David Moyes is saying someone should lose their job now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Easy known we're not talking about a fellow manager, you know, in which case I'm sure he'd be urging patience and he's doing a great job and, you know, he needs to be given time. I say Howard Webb should be given at least five and a half more years to prove that he can still cut it at the top level. At the moment, the signs are not good. He's, had a, he's, he's made a few uh, mistakes in recent times. A lot of people scratching their heads wondering how a guy like this managed to get a job like that. The top job in the ref industry in, in Britain. How did, how did this guy manage to get that job? I say he needs time.
3: Two thousand thirteen was the year of Roy Keane in Irish football in many ways. Even though he didn't really do much. He was no. he was given a job. He has started that job. He's gone to a lot of games over the Christmas period, so we've heard before or five I've seen a lot of Irish players. He appeared in a documentary and lit up the screen. Yeah. And that's really... Oh, he appeared in Alex Ferguson's book, so he literally did nothing there. Alex but Ferguson Alex Ferguson, Ferguson gave everyone. a little... But uh, yeah, Roy Keane being Roy Keane, he is one of the people we end up talking about most as we look back on the major football events of 2013. Um, and we're going to do that a little bit more with Richie and Dion, Richie Sadler, and Dion Fanning a little bit later on today. Sad news, came before we go, of the passing of Uncle Phil from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, James Avery, the name of the actor there. Now, I understand that this doesn't mean a huge amount to you. You are the only person in Ireland in their early to mid thirties. Yeah.
0: Throwing the early there for you. Who did not watch uh, the No, fresh I never Blair. I never watched it. I don't know I don't know how Carlton and his dance. What time was it on? was it on like kind of six ish? About five PM yeah. sort the of time. See I would have yeah. been I would have usually been in swimming, you know. I would have been in the swimming pool. You're like Paul O'Connell. Home and away, um, fresh principal air. These are the these are the gaps in my knowledge. These are the things that I never saw. Well, you
3: may have heard of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I would, yeah. Shredder, do you know that one of the the, the chief bad guy character? Well, G- oh, that, no, that would be know, Krang, He was Trills. Krang's underling. Yep, that was the the voice of that was given by James Avery as well. So, oh really? Yeah, he has such an impact on our pop culture. Ken, that remember how we dealt with Murphy Shredder? Today? Hang
0: on, the evil Shredder.
3: Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, do you remember how we dealt with Kieran Murphy after his mangling the French language the other day? Yeah, Remember Simon just picked him up and flung him out, literally threw him? That's called a uh, the I I don't know what you call it, probably Jazzy, a j- Jeffing. jazzy Jeffing, I'd say you'd call it. <laughs> jazzy Jeff, good mates of Fresh Prince of Air, not really well liked by Uncle Phil. Uncle Phil would Jazzy Jeff him the hell out of there. And that's, so you didn't even understand the I cultural didn't references. That, no, I didn't understand, I just thought it was just getting solid. ugly here. Might as well dedicate this show to, um, first show of 2014, to Uncle Phil slash... Shredder's voice. Take care.
1: What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys.